Hi, this is Cinemad, and I'm here with Jeff Krulik. Uh, if you read his bio, it, it reads a little bit like a normal person um, in the, the film TV world getting work, um, working at the Travel Channel, the Discovery Channel, um, shows on PBS, shows at MoMA, shows at the Lincoln Center. But then when you see the subject matter, which is uh, the men who created a TV show with talking chimpanzees, a man who is a porn historian, uh, professional wrestler Freddie Blassie, Ernest Borgnine driving a bus, and then, of course, uh, heavy metal fans standing in a parking lot. Then you realize that uh, Jeff Krulik's not quite a normal filmmaker or person. So, Jeff, thanks for coming out to L.A. just for this podcast. <laughs> My pleasure, Mike. My <laughs> pleasure. I'm happy to do it. Uh, yeah. No, we just did a show at CineFamily where we showed a lot of stuff that people hadn't seen, and it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, one thing I didn't ask you at Cinda Family was just how did you end up in D.C.? What, what did your parents do? Well, actually, yeah, they uh, dad was a shower curtain salesman, b believe it or not. He was really? a yeah, he was a well, it was he was a manufacturer's rep for uh, bath accessories, uh, luxury shower curtains. And it was a family business. Um, my great uncle was a uh, is a. Shower curtain pioneer. <laughs> he wow. he created or you know invented, if you will, you know luxury shower curtains. And I mean luxury <laughs> nowadays, nobody really invests money into shower curtains, uh, or at least you know nice decorative shower curtains. You know, many years ago they did. So, uh, but Uncle Joe Joseph A. Kaplan, he he was a shower curtain pioneer. Dad. He was my grandmother's uh, older brother. Dad went into the family business as a salesman and uh, basically had a territory, which was the Mid-Atlantic. And he met my mother, who was from Baltimore, at a uh, Halloween party. <laughs> and, and the rest is history. And, uh, and so, she, so, what, so anyway, we... They, how does that shower curtain look, though? What, what, <laughs> well, anyway, I love saying that because what happened was... It, it's all for real, and unfortunately, the company ended up you know being sold and the whole that whole business is not this what it once was and and so uh they uh but that's my legacy and where i'm from and what's, dad dad what's so the, we, what's the difference uh, between a luxury yeah, shower well, I, I know i kind of opened the door for this yeah didn't I? I, I, <laughs> well it really um just where you would invest money in something that was really nicely designed and mm -hmm. and, and, and and appointed and fancy, whereas now you just put up a piece of plastic, you know, so that you keep the water off the floor, and you know, and you go to the a store that sells it cheapest as opposed to going to a, even department stores. Dad used to sell to department stores, oh, wow. you know, that you know as the uh, you know. Wholesale, uh, he he would rep the, the line, and it wasn't just shower curtains; it was bath, it was bath accessories and, and 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 whatnot. And that was the uh, the business, and it was quite successful and you know fruitful for many many years. But again, it's it's different now, and understandably, and uh, but but that's but what happened was we settled in a in a suburb, a, a Levitt suburb of, of uh, called Bowie, Maryland, which was kind of uh, in between D.C. And, and Baltimore. Mom was from Baltimore, and um, Dad dad worked, you know, on, on the road, but uh, this just seemed, and my, my mom's sister and her family lived in Annapolis, Maryland, which wasn't far. So we settled in this town that was where everybody was settling in the early 60s, a Levitt town uh, built by 
William Levitt um, called a, a Bowie, Maryland, and uh, that's where I grew up. You know, typical baby boomer, uh, suburban cookie cutter landscape upbringing. So, what what's your picture of D.C. being a kid there? That's because you haven't lived anywhere else, right? Exactly. I I basically. You know, lived, grew up in this town, Bowie, Maryland, which is not far from Washington D.C. I mean, most of my focus at, at in high school was was in in uh, th- that community. Um, we did venture out a bit, but mainly to the 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 new shopping mall, Landover Mall, built not far away. Uh, and then you know, you basically, eventually, you went a little further and into Washington D.C., which uh, on your own, as opposed to going with your parents or on a mm-hmm. school group school trip uh and then you start you know discovering uh, what's happening uh and you start getting uh, you know culturally aware and and um you start getting your own kind of a cultural vocabulary going if you're so inclined and and i did as you know, musically you know that was pretty much one of my first uh it, it, you know just uh, awakenings of uh you know culturally that you know things were happening. This was in the late '70s, and so you know I'm pretty much tired of album rock early, and started looking at what was el- what else was happening. But I think also going back a little further than that, I just have always been innately curious of you know unusual, eccentric, odd, out of the mainstream subject matter. I mean, and I embraced that I think through literature when I was discovering work through through English classes through school. Uh, the hi- the library, I, I you know I, I remember, I, and I loved going to the movies, um, and uh, you know so it was great to to read about movies and movie making and you know exploitation movie making and odd movie. I remember going to the library, and just I would love to get the uh, variety, look through variety, and see all these just ads for movies that weren't even being made or that were being just kind of concocted and just. You know, just they have these bizarro ad campaigns and, and just like, like that campaign, just sort of like a market, right? Was happening right, and, and, and I didn't, I didn't quite know this what was happening. I just yeah. knew it was the not. The film wasn't made. They were, they were raising. <laughs> right, money. right, but it was just this weirdo, crazy window into a new universe that was not what I was accustomed to, or what was talked about, or even what my friends were necessarily into. But you know, but I liked it. But I also liked going to newsstands and picking up a copy of Field and Stream magazine and flipping to the back and looking through the uh, classified ads of, you know, how to how to build an earthworm farm or, or uh, you know, correspondence with prisoners. You know, how weird is that, you know? And it just never got that far, although I do remember bringing that up with my parents once. Uh-huh. And they were like, don't you dare. You know, they just they put the fear of God in me about corresponding with people on a... So in the back of Field of Field, field and Stream, <laughs> it could have been anything really. I just remember for, for some reason Field and Stream. I mean, I'm not an outdoorsman in the least, uh, but I just remember you'd pick up a copy of that, uh, one of those kind of uh, a publication that wasn't quite at the front of the rack, mm-hmm. and just look. Oh, pro wrestling magazines. Oh, those were great. You know, blow up love dolls. You know, I mean, this. I. I. But how? What? What is this? You know. But these were being advertised in the back of uh, right. these publications, which I could you know, look at and nobody would think twice about it. I, I, I didn't, you know, get, start, you know, looking at uh, adult magazines until a little, got a little braver, but. Uh, Did you ever order anything out of a comic book? Those, oh, sure. Uh, 
Well, wait a second. Look, you know, I mean, I remember the Johnson Smith catalog. That was mm -hmm. a big, that was a, a Bible of sorts. But, uh, and I was a real big comic book guy. I was definitely a comic book, loved comic books. Mm -hmm. And uh, Fantastic Four, that was my, that was, one. That, was one, that was the one. I wasn't a DC guy. Mm -hmm. uh, that was too, um, too real. You know, I liked the more fantastic worlds that Marvel uh, yeah. offered up and then Mark, I, but i yeah. love oh, oh god i gotta throw a shout out to mad magazine you know that was a, <laughs> that really informed me you know right. uh, uh in a great way i mean i'd say really that was the gateway mad magazine was the gateway to national lampoon mm -hmm. and to rolling stone you know those two were you know in the 70s were great and rolling stone probably more to a degree than the lampoon but that was that was really a window into uh you know worlds elsewhere than what i was accustomed to yeah mad was great because uh, it's basically for kids but referencing all these things you probably don't know maybe popular movies maybe popular music but lots and lots of stuff that you don't know as a kid and that's your first sort of absolutely yeah and when i was also starting to discover movies you know and the parodies they would have and to be able to i mean i mean i could still tell you my first four r-rated movies i mean that dad took me to uh -huh. it was uh yeah, four. It was um, French Connection. Right. Godfather. Mm -hmm. Now it gets good. Deliverance. <laughs> Dad took me to see Deliverance. <laughs> How old do you think? Uh, well, when did that come out? I mean, was that seventy-two? Yeah. You know, so I was eleven. So. Eleven. And I'm like, I remember asking him, <laughs> "What's going on here?" You know, what? Are, what and, and Dad just said, "Well, he's he's making." I turned to him. And said, well, what's he doing? What's he making him do? You know, well, he's making him squeal like a pig. Oh, okay. I didn't know anything about literally what was happening on on screen. Oh boy, it's but 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 you know what a great profound you know just just film as well as those yeah. other two and then also. I mean, then I saw Rollerball, <laughs> and I think, but right. then uh, I remember this was a huge, these started to be really, really deep influences with me in addition to everything else that I was mentioning. Mm -hmm. And again, that was like 11, 12, but, but then as I got a little older, I mean, sneaking into films, and I snuck in with my pal Eric Rubenstein to see the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that was that that is the film that I cite. I mean, I love horror, but I'm not like a, you know, a, a horror junkie necessarily. But I will say the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the film that's for me in a lot of ways where things really clicked. And it's a amazing film. Yeah. And it's almost a documentary. Exactly. Still today. Exactly. You recognize you don't know where the fuck they are. <laughs> First off, yeah, it's shot 16 millimeter. Right, it looks like a TV crew, documentary crew. You don't recognize anybody still today. Right, and it's just really strange. And I saw it the first time at a drive-in when I was like probably I think I was about seven when it came out. But we went to see another film, which was whatever, take this job and shove it or something, and or that maybe not even that. That's not the right year. But then. Me and my cousin got on the roof of the car and turned around, and it was on another screen. <laughs> and we couldn't hear the dialogue, but you could hear the saw. Wow. And just seeing that thing, mm -hmm. like, it just marks you. Without a soundtrack and just going, what's going on? Just yeah. Well, we it is. It really, truly, you know, and to, be, to have snuck into the theater yep. to see that. I mean, we had – that was our express intent was to go see that. Um, but we had to still orchestrate it. And we were 13. And uh -huh. How'd that work? 
Oh, well, it, it, we got in. I mean, uh, we paid to see whatever the PG film was, or oh, GP right. film, I think, at the time. Right. We managed to then walk in, because this was at the Landover Mall 6. We got to go into, right. then snuck in to see Texas uh, Chainsaw Massacre. This, this may be the most important thing malls ever did, is make multiplexes. <laughs> You're right. With one box office. Right. Absolutely, it's you're a, right. you're totally. It, it's true, and you know, so that opened in the early '70s, and then another multiplex opened not long after that, and we were able to, you know, sneak into other films. But seeing, I guess, eventually getting to go into R-rated films on my own, sneak into them, you know, way before we were you mm-hmm. know, supposed to be allowed to. That you know, a lot of that really helped inform and define my my. Uh, um, aesthetic and worldview and again i mean it, i mean this was before i picked up a camera but it was a lot of the stuff was what i was interested in or just right. oddball you know extreme culture and and were and, you seeing any do you know what the first documentary you, saw you know was? what that's a that's a good question i really don't i i certainly didn't pay i didn't go to see anything in the mm. theater i really Which, didn't there and wasn't i really and much there, there wasn't much available and i don't even remember like I don't even remember a light bulb going on over my head saying documentaries. That's what I want to do or need to do or that's what I can do. Um, mm-hmm. But that's I, I think really it was television that at least opened up that uh, world to me, and uh, and it wasn't until until much later. I mean, so really, what was happening for me, you know, formatively was, mm-hmm. you know, m- music. Um, film that was you know at the uh, local theaters all you know just the, mm-hmm. the the cultural vibe of the time of the 70s and late 70s and just what was happening but yeah what, it, what, it, but, was it bands that were like coming through town well no it was really um well i mean you know you just knew there was something going on like again because i was mm-hmm. interested in unusual material offbeat stuff I was drawn to punk rock, not literally the music, but what they were writing about. I'm like, because mm-hmm. nobody else was into this, and this seemed really special. It seemed worth investigating. Mm-hmm. And then when I started to, you know, and I, I had some friends who were really into music too, or at least discovering music, a few friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, mind you, I had a lot of other friends who weren't, and I was, we had our own thing going on. It wasn't like, I, I didn't feel like any kind of outcast or misfit or any of the kind of classic you know, I was the class president. I was the class really? president, yeah, of, of my high school. And and so I was really in... For it, multiple years or one well, year? Well, no, I, I was 10th grade president and then 12th senior year. So you were voted in by your I was. Peers. I was voted in. What did you run on? I don't remember. <laughs> I certainly don't think... I, I just... Uh, were there I, any I, major reforms? Not, a, not did, in like, the least. It, 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 was just a, it was just... Prices. It was just... Uh, you know, silly, just, it wasn't silly. I mean, we were, it was, it, it was, I mean, student government, mm-hmm. I think it was, you basically had your, your student government association, which I was actively involved with. I mean, I was, I was a very engaged, active high school kid. Mm-hmm. I was, I was plugged into everything but sports. <laughs> I'm not an athlete <laughs> and I never participated in sports right. and I wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, I would go to the, you know, all my buddies and pals did, but I was, I, you know, I mean, I went through my drama club phase and mm-hmm. was in, uh, in, in the drama department and in theater. Mm-hmm. And then did you get girls as class president? You had to ask that. No, not no. <laughs> I, I I mean I think a lot of that was not because of I you know anyone. I think the, the reason I was you know afraid of girls. Uh, I I didn't know. 
I mean, I, I, that sounds silly. I was, I wasn't like a big, normal, yeah. right? I wasn't a big dater. I mean, I had girlfriends. I, I mean, not, not. I did not have a girlfriend mm-hmm. per se in that sense of you know walking down the halls ha- holding lady. hands that that sort of stuff. I mean, I had, you know, I mean, I had girlfriends and 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 you know really yeah. close girlfriends yeah. as well as close guy friends. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't, you know, you know all that stereotypical or archetypal. Uh, uh, high school stuff and, and first love stuff. I, I didn't do that for whatever reason. We can't even, we don't have enough time or enough tape <laughs> to go start down that road. But I was, uh, um, you know, but I did really, I was ter- terribly engaged in high school mm-hmm. on, on a lot of levels. I, you know, I was a decent student. You know, I loved, hang, you know, different pe- I, I was always curious about the different, you know, the the clicks. I mean, I had uh, you know, I I had my friends who were, you know, athletes and you know, academics and and and, and pot smokers. Yeah. You know, I knew many. You know, and and you know, we all certainly, on my level, we all got along. And mm-hmm. and uh, did you? Were you able to see through? You know, there's that some point. Sometimes it's usually after high school, but usually the senior year where you can sort of see through the teachers. And you just sort of at some point it clicks at like oh these are just people. Um, again, I, I I never had any any issues with any any teachers. I, I got along with everybody for the most part. I think I was a terrible terrible math student. And again, that was just because it wasn't my thing. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, look, I I probably. I mean, I know I have ADD, but nothing was diagnosed back then. You know, it just was was a. Uh, you just kind of coped with what, and, 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 and as opposed to, you know, just throwing my hands. I mean, if I think I had done it differently, I would have applied myself more to the areas that I wasn't so good at instead of just throwing my hands up. Right. And, but that, of course, led me to, you know, the arts or just being, um, you know, uh, the liberal arts, literature, when I could. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was probably the most, uh, the one of the greatest influences for me was the advanced placement English class. Just you oh, know, wow. Mrs. Richardson, you know, just being able to, you know, catch twenty two, reading catch twenty two in high school. That you know, that's still like a seminal experience. So, and and then I think uh, that's a, that's quite a few outsiders. In yeah, the book, so. right, right, right. Outsiders inside the system. Exactly, and that and so I I, I kind of think I I had a great deal of empathy and interest in these characters, and I think and also just in real life even, and that's where I think I I I I just I mean if you were to ask my parents, I know they would say I'd have the I was always uh, interested in the you know extremes of uh, mm-hmm. uh, eccentric behavior, and and I just. Um, yeah, I probably drove him crazy. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, but did, was there like an interview TV show? Well, no, that's, uh, I think what happened was, um, you know, so I was interested, mm-hmm. I, I got really plugged into, so so what was happening musically yeah. was I, you know, was, you know, buying um, album rock or, you know, and I loved Jethro Tull because they were unusual and but you know great rock and roll too you know at the time but it was also like when i oh and you know going to see the concerts i mean i was kind of a late bloomer in concert going i'm the oldest son so i didn't have anybody i'm the oldest so i didn't have any older siblings that take me along to a, a rock rock concert but i was in, again i was subscribing to rolling stone magazine you know punk rock was being written up in time magazine or even in the mainstream media i, I would always devour the newspaper every day or at least Mm-hmm. Certainly on the weekends, cover to cover, or 
to see what Main, was happening. Yeah, what was happening, and mainly, you know, a lot of, especially the arts sections. And so, you know, this, you know, and these subjects were being talked about, and, you know, the, the you know, but, but, uh, but I also, you know, there was like a free music publication in the Washington area called Unicorn Times. They would have it at the library, so I'd get pick that up. So you would read about the clubs and read about the bands and occasionally mm -hmm. national acts. But uh, I, I think what happened mm -hmm. was I, I, like Elvis Costello, got actually some mainstream airplay. Um, oh, but also, right. you know, with that first album. Mm -hmm. And um, right. but I have to say that a huge. Uh, window into a lot of what was happening was through Saturday Night Live at the time. I mean, I remember watching the first Saturday Night Live in mm -hmm. 1975 with George Carlin, you know, and so, and, and that, you know, you become, I mean, I watched that, that on my little black and white TV in my room, in the corner of my room on the floor, you know, your little TV den. And I saw, I, I, I was like, you know, a lot of friends might've been out, you know, partying at the local field. I wasn't a partier and I was a, a good boy, shall we say. And so, but I would, you know, had my, uh, I was allowed to, you know, explore whatever. In this case, you know, certainly having a TV. I remember that first, um, you know, uh, experience of watching Saturday Night Live, and and that, and then you became hooked that first season. They even well, for the first five years, I mean, it was so incredible. But they would have these acts on every musical acts, and and you you know, I mean, uh, Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, Devo, mm. um, you name it. They important artists uh, uh, that were emerging were getting that their their they weren't being played on the radio but once they got on Saturday night live there was a you know people saw them they might not have liked them but right. in the in my case it was like whoa but but also I started to uh, hang out one of my f close friends was listening to the local college radio station uh, and of course that then you know you, you just things start you know, and I started to go to concerts Mm -hmm. Bad Company was my first concert, you know, <laughs> but I, I did, because what happened right. was I had some girlfriends in homeroom who were big concert goers, and I begged them to take me to a concert. They right. did, and um, I wish it had been Led Zeppelin, but just to be, <laughs> but, I mean, Bad Company were fine, you know, sure. it was a fine first experience for a concert, but then eventually, you know, after right. a few more arena rock shows, mm -hmm. Elvis Costello came to the local college, saw him, that was great, but then, and this was senior year of high school, so things started to expand rapidly. I went to, um, uh, fortunate, there was something called the Outrageous Music Festival, mm -hmm. and uh, it was put on in Washington at this theater, just four acts. One of the acts was the Cramps, you know, oh, yeah. and so, that was, you, you know, in 1979 to see the Cramps on. They weren't they weren't even headliners, but pity wow. anybody who came on after them. And so that was a really huge. So, so this was actually on campus. No, this was um, in a theater, the Warner Theater. I wasn't in college yet. It was um, I was still in high school, but it was that senior year of high school where, you know, you had a little bit more liberty and you had more um, things were starting to happen in town and mm -hmm. I had friends who were you know equally curious and you know brave enough to venture outside of the comfort zone to go downtown because we weren't on our own yet um, and but we did I mean it wasn't that hard to do you just had to do it and uh, it's more but, about uh, knowing that's happening right that's the hard exactly part. exactly I mean this this was and again we were reading about it in the local music publication and also um, hearing about it uh, perhaps 
um, I guess through the you know the grapevine because it was a grapevine back then. This was yeah. no there was no internet and and uh, you know yeah, yeah. So so it was just your your ear to the ground and and so we but you found yourself there and then to see an act like that and to really you know just rearrange your head and then right around the time I saw the films of Chuck Statler at the Hirshhorn Museum and I, again it was because it, they were marketing it you know somewhat as well as they could well I, actually I don't think they marketed it at all it was just word of mouth and the, it, yeah was because, it part yeah. of an exhibit or just a no the, the Hirshhorn still to this day has a wonderful uh, film series weekly film series mm -hmm. and uh, they would show um, they showed those you know a lot they find independent and, mm -hmm. and 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 uh yeah. you, you know uh, uh foreign and 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 just experimental um right. you know, avant-garde film and and uh and so was chuck's claim to fame at the time that he had done devo videos? right devo elvis costello um mm -hmm. madness uh the whatever the, the the stiff records but really but it was not even you know I don't. Even, I don't even remember it being listed as music films. It was just the films of Chuck Statler, wow. and you know there might have been a there was a brief write up. I went back and found the article, and it did mention and name drop the uh, some of the act the the musical acts mm -hmm. that were in you know. Just, but but again, it was really through the word of mouth, through the the emerging or entrenched music mm -hmm. alternative music community of which we were just becoming aware of so we went and that was that was really great you know you literally moment. had like a switch turn on exactly it was really filmmaking it was, was possible filmmaking and 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 just your own personal vision and just uh something that was just so beyond the pale i didn't even know what dada was i had no idea what the term was but you know just anything that was really uh, your a, a vision that had a uncharted territory maybe but but right. yet i mean at least in my mind i mean obviously maybe things came from something else but i didn't really have any awareness of of any any background it was just but to have a blank slate like that you know it was a really great great influence i mean you had the cramps seeing the cramps not maybe a month you know yet elvis costello and, and doing great rock and roll that was not being played in the local um radio stations which right. everybody else you know and i was listening to and you're here wow what what is this sound this is great and then you hear the cramps you see the cramps not just hear them you see them and you're, you're you can touch them and you're not and previously you know and and, and everything else was just re revolving around you know arena rock where everybody's far far away and, and you're supposed yeah. to be moved by that but here you're being moved by somebody right in your face Right. And and uh, and, that and plus band, and the band who opens is in the crowd for the next band exactly and they're good and the band's good I mean this yeah. is and great rock and rolls happening right here in front of your face and 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 just to be you know sixteen seventeen and eighteen to see this and to be exposed to it and again this is light years from where we are right now uh, you know thirty years ago what have you that you know over thirty years it was really just uh, and you had to be there and then to experience it. And, and to, but again, have to have that blank slate and mm -hmm. that really does become a eureka moment. And, and I then to see the films of Chuck Statler and it wasn't even the music film 
the, his music work, but that Turkey film that we showed yesterday, right. which uh, it's it, in some circles, it's called the Turkey film. I mean, Chuck even says it's either the Turkey film or the real title is Ain't We Having Fun. But it just was, it, it's, it's so, I don't even know how to describe it, but it really, and that was like the first film that was shown that night. So before they showed Devo or the Elvis Costello films or anything, that film, this bizarro film for three, four minutes. And I'm like, and so I never forgot it. And that led me to a friendship with Chuck, you know, many years later. I basically, I wrote him a fan letter or called him, made a fan phone call. Right. <laughs> he said, whatever it was, I checked, I reached out to him and we've become friends and, and, and right. good friends. And, and he... But that was so. So all this was happening right before college. I guess this is maybe mm -hmm. deviating a bit from where you had asked about documentary. I still didn't know anything from documentary, right. and and yet once I got to college, um, which was a whole nother world because I lived on campus. Even though it was like twenty, I went to the University of Maryland. And back then, you just showed up, paid your admission fee, and you were in. You really could just get in if you eat with the the bare minimum. I had a, I'd had a maybe 3.0. I hope, I hope it was 3.0. I think yeah, it was precedent. right. Right. I, I was not a scholar, but I was not, I don't think I was, um, you know, uh, I wasn't honor roll material, but I was uh, close enough, I think for my own esteem. I, but, but, but I, 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 but I was, I never really looked at to any other, uh, any other place to go besides the, the University of Maryland because that was where everybody was going. I had no problem with that. And, of course, I was allowed and encouraged to, uh, thankfully, live on campus. Um, and that was a, another w universe opening up. And then right. that led me to working in college radio because of the music and then radio broadcasting. That's what I wanted to do. Right. And then music, but more importantly, the music, I became this passionate music collector and, and, and interested in promoting. I love to promote. I love to just, you know, be, I, I just love promoting and marketing and publicity. And I just, um, I wanted to do that for music. And that was my interest. Again, so really documentary was not anything or hmm. it was, it was, but yet filmmaking and films were of great interest to me. Right. And they did not have a film department or film, you know, studies, but I, I found through the through the English department they had film classes. They were really greatly influential. I mean, seeing films like you know Bonnie and Clyde, and of course Citizen Kane, and starting to understand just film vocabulary, and and then mm -hmm. getting oh McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I mean, and just you know seeing mm -hmm. this work that was caught the conversation. I mean, these were the films. This professor was showing his own prints of these films yeah, in the right. English department. And now, you know, these were commercial films, but unless you were plugged in, you, you, you missed them. And, um, and so to see these, these films and to understand them and talk about them and hear about them and just become, you know, conversant in what, what's going on. And then I started to look into other film classes and, you know, oh, European cinema, you know, finding, you know, then to take those classes and to watch these films that were, you know, ne you, I never had access to before, and then to understand those. So this was kind of my film awakening, at least right. through these classes. And uh, just to see, and j just, mm -hmm. again, you're still a sponge at that time. I mean, everybody, I'm sure you had the same kind sure. of, you know, college experience. You're just soaking things up. And, and, and so I was 
you know, and then I just I dedicated after many false starts. I I wound up with an English get pursuing an English degree, and then the film classes I was doing. I was going, you know, but also on campus, you know, Dawn of the Dead at midnight. You know, that was. I mean, these experiences were really, really just seminal, just kinds of. Uh, um, influential so it wasn't I mean again, this right. is before home video and you had to be at that theater and you had to be in the masses and be there at midnight yeah and just, it's an event and just, it's an event exactly and so this was happening at the same time and so mm-hmm. I loved the you know that that you know the the, the lowbrow if you will even though you know I, I don't mean to imply that necessarily but just the whole spectrum of what sure. film was happening and and of and Available and, and music film, um, you know, the decline of Western civilization, Penelope Spheris' work. So, I, well, right. you know what, to be honest with you, that's where things started to click because um, I'd see that mm-hmm. and I was interested. We were very actively involved in working at the college radio station and this was at a time when we were trying to turn it into a, into a free-form station mm-hmm. um, and, and eventually succeeded, which was neat to be at the vanguard of that because and then every day became you know like uh you know it was the it was christmas or hanukkah <laughs> opening presents when you had the the records that were coming in because because we actively pursued right. the the uh you know independent smaller record labels, labels smaller yeah. labels and they would just flood us with content and we, it became this mission for us to program and expose people to this work and then so that was happening. The major, you know, I had been interested, I mentioned, in maybe working in the record industry, and I soured on that quickly as I realized that any of the work that I liked was not going to be um, popular. Yeah. <laughs> no matter not what you be did. Made, not going to be available. Be, exactly, not going to be mainstream. And, and, and so, but it was through, um, so the, I, I, and the radio station was freeform, anything goes, programming. You had your, you put your own spin on it. I remember a, a jazz DJ started becoming a public access user and would, would literally set up taping of a jazz concert on campus. Oh, wow. Yeah, Larry Applebaum got the crew to come out from the local cable company. He's the first that. person, uh, and they, they taped this in, in an art gallery, a jazz concert with two cameras and a, and a switcher and a van that pulled up on campus. And I'm like, this was great television freeform television doing your own thing and larry where how do i get involved with this and i signed up and this was towards the end of my my uh college years right. you know because i graduated in 1983 mm-hmm. but i got behind a camera not through film class but through community public access television i became a volunteer well i, I got trained and then instantly took a camera out taped a modern dance recital I know nothing about modern dance. I mean, I know nothing about. I mean, I cannot tell you how heavy these cameras were, lugging them, up, <laughs> lugging them up into a, to the crow's nest of this, uh, dance, you know, uh, hall. It was and it was so hot. The cameras overheated. I guess I was off to the races. I, I mean, right. I really, I really, you know, where I can say documentary is what really. I think leapt into the kind of my consciousness or doing were these mini documentaries, something that was done on local television. It was a a program called capital edition and it was every Sunday, like a newscaster just got tired of news for, he basically sold the, the, that channel into doing an hour long vignette show of like four different, five different 
mini documentaries, local, local Washington area profiles of musicians or just things that were happening culturally or, or of interest. And this show was, it was called Capital Edition. John Goldsmith, I believe that was his name. Hmm. And he did this uh, every Sunday for many years in the, uh, well, several years in the early 80s to mid 80s, maybe even late 80s. But that was the one I thought, I want to do this. <laughs> I want to do this. But, but I didn't necessarily pursue that. But that was where doc, we're doing these documentaries. Mm -hmm. But also, it was, you know, and, and, and just having access to cameras and realizing that you could do really anything. Well, did was, you feel like people were actually seeing the work? No, <laughs> my work? No, no, no. No, you know, no. Public, I, the public access oh, stuff. No, things uh, you were around. Not well. It, it, I don't think they did, but but nobody was listening to the radio station either. So right. it was really so. Even if one person heard the station, because it was a ten watt station, mm -hmm. you had to really work hard to hear it. People did. I don't mean to say that they didn't, but right. you could count them on two hands, maybe at, at most that you knew were listening, you know, one hand, whatever. You, it, so if you heard from one person or t who, that was listening to the station, so even working on the radio, making television, it didn't really matter. You just knew it was out there. So right. I was already accustomed to that, right. you know, low, you know, the do small demographic of, of listeners or viewers. Uh, right. But it was the chance to, to kind of to work and make what I right. considered my... I don't even think I considered it art or anything. It was just stuff. That I, you know, I think I'm also a I'm also a collector mm -hmm. slash hoarder. You know, I am. I, I'm you know stuff. I'm an archivist. I I mean I flatter. That's silly. I'm not. I mean I just don't have. I mean, I, so so I think you do, you do work at the National Archives. Though. Well, I do. I do now. Not yeah. I, I. I do freelance research. So, but I. So I, I guess what I'm saying is that as somebody who I value like like collecting stuff. Like I was collecting maybe interviews or just or just material. I would portraits. It, portraits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just you know, it's funny. I wish. I wish. I just. Um, I like. I never was a. Like I didn't get exposed to documentary film. Um, but it's it's more interesting this way that it's pure. I I yeah I mean I think um, you want to tell stories. You're around people. You like those type of people, and you felt those people just like radio and everything else. Like right. Someone, well, you someone, know, someone, if I'm interested in this, someone else probably is too. Right. Right. And I also was interviewing people on the radio too. I try. You know, mm -hmm. bands, music. Don't forget. I mean, music was still my thing. I mean, bands, right. promoting bands, promoting music, and so there's a degree of documentary when you're doing the interviews yeah. of the these artists and whether they're on the show, radio show live or. Or mm -hmm. at the, you bring a tape recorder to backstage, uh, right. and then you see something like Penelope Spheris' decline right. of Western civilization. You realize there's a way to combine music and um, people and interviewing and and on film and you, and then like documentary. You make well, this, you know, and the interesting and decline. You know, a lot of people in the scene have problems with it because it it's a little more on the violent end or a little more on the edgy end. And some bands didn't make it in it, and it's a lot of well, internal stuff. Right. But what, but what I think is important about it, and fascinating about it, is that it's one of the first films I remember where here's the bands, and here's all the kids, and here's what the kids think. It's not just, and they, she doesn't just interview them at the show, and then here's the club owner. What do they think? Here's the security guy. What does he think? And that's really stretching it out beyond. Here's the Rolling Stones. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. 
And I also, it, yeah, again, I, I guess thinking back, you mentioned Rolling Stones. I, I saw Gimme Shelter, and that was, oh, yeah. yeah. So, Jesus. and Woodstock. I, 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 I think I, you know, I, I remember being intrigued by these because I, again, I had to seek them out. Um, but so, so you didn't have, it wasn't that you had a public access show that made you go to the Judas Priest Park. No, no, not at all. And were you listening to Judas Priest? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I was not a, me- a heavy metal fan. I-, I-, I never once remember being dismissive of it. Um, I wasn't. I mean, I- in fact, I never dismissed any music. You just weren't a con- connoisseur. Well, you weren't yeah, a I mean, of- I-, I, w- I always had big ears, though. I mean, I always liked to listen. I mean, I always felt like if something sounded good to me, it was okay, whether it was top 40 or, you know, uh, look, uh, heard ACDC, you know, uh, sure. shook me all night long, uh, driving over. I, I turned that up, you know, that's, that's a great song. I mean, that came out in 81, you know, right at the time of right. wh- where, you know, that was the enemy, but I'm like, wasn't to me. I mean, I, had you seen a lot I mean, of shows I, at well, that yeah, arena? I, I guess going back, more about I think location. what I'm thinking about, yeah, just, I'm just kind of thinking back to where that came from. This was when we made heavy metal parking lot, I was already running this public access studio because that's what happened. I became, I graduated from the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, started in this was in the early in 1983. Was a public access volunteer, getting access to the equipment for making, you know, doing whatever. Uh, I started selling cable. That's what I did to make a living. Right out of high school, right out of college, rather, I became a door-to-door salesman in the. Uh, mm-hmm southern part of the county i lived in and uh, that was a another <laughs> influence influential uh experience and career choice that really was quite a you mean like window. seeing into people's homes absolutely and also into <laughs> into people's homes that where i never would have dreamed i had access to it was you know of all the social strata it was really really an interesting job and that was for a year and a half and th- and then they promoted me at that job because they knew I liked the studio and was interested in television. And they needed somebody, essentially a warm body, to keep the right. the county off their back. The citizens. I mean, public access was such a hustle because it really was just, you know, the, it was a monopoly when the cable company would go in. But in order to placate the um, county p- powers that be and and whatnot and, and the citizenry, they said, "We'll give you your own television." you know, network channel. and channel to do whatever you wanted. But then they needed a gatekeeper, me, 25 years old, you know, to run this station. But it was just to keep the, you know, people off the back of the uh, management. And I th- right. think I did a fairly decent job, but I stayed there too long. You know, some people get other, uh, you know, career, find other career paths that have a l- lot more um, upward mobility and, this didn't, but what it allowed me, it gave me a lot of freedom, uh, for better or worse. And within the freedom, I mean, instead of like looking, I didn't have the ambition to go climb the corporate ladder. I had the ambition to go make my work that I was starting to become interested in doing and right. having access to professional gear anytime I wanted allowed me to do that. And then. I, you know, and I still was into music, and I was bringing bands in to. Re- we'd have bands play in the studio, mm-hmm. but uh, I also became friends with um, John Hine, who was a local filmmaker and 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 TV guy who 
we met we bonded over our love for old movie theaters that's something i will say i got to mention mm -hmm. my first ambitious project was a documentary about um, the uh, old movie theaters of Washington D.C., the movie palaces, because I never knew these existed. I came, grew up with the, you know, suburban multiplex, not even a multiplex, single screen, then multiplex, but the box theaters. I never, they went from being large screen to small to smaller, and so on. But I had no idea these palaces had existed, and I found out mm -hmm. about them. I started to, that was my first documentary, and uh, I, and so that was through the public access equipment. And I became, met John Hine, who did a similar film. <laughs> he also was interested in this. Oh, and, and so, because a local writer <laughs> mentioned that I was looking for, I got a, a mention in the local film notes column in the Washington Post, and that, by being mentioned and written up there, John saw that and contacted me, and we met, became fast friends. I said, hey, come to my studio and do work, and he did, and that was pretty much uh, in 1985, late 1985, and then by spring of 1986, he had the idea, let's go, let's do something on heavy metal fans at the Capitol Center, which was where the, uh, which was the arena which is where all the bands we we grew i would that's where i saw my first concerts and uh right. you know then you know anybody i was interested in seeing you know i went through you know the who the rolling stones bruce springsteen everybody plays there everybody right. but also in the heavy metal bands that I mean, this was a time when heavy metal mm -hmm. was could sell out arenas right. and didn't have any hits but they had their following and they could command the eighteen thousand people at an arena and, and this was the case with Judas Priest. And I had friends who liked Judas Priest. In fact, I had some, you know, close, you know, punk friends, if you will, who were into also metal. But I wasn't a big um, uh, fan. But it, I, it isn't. It's interesting that you didn't go to interview the band, though. Well, not in the least. We wouldn't have had the slightest clue how to do that and how to how to reach them and or even what to ask them, you know? Right. We didn't know anything about their music and, and we then, didn't. So what did you think about the fans going into it? Well, it, it again, it was John's idea and I think it came from him because of mm -hmm. you, you, this was this was a time when metal was, you know, hair metal was everywhere. Hair metal was on MTV. MTV was already happening. Headbangers Ball must have been going on, if I'm not mistaken. And you just knew that this was a, a scene, and a colorful scene. You had we had our idea that it would be colorful. It was my studio was literally down the street from the arena. It was not far, mm -hmm. so it was not a tough you know to take you know an afternoon. It was May 31st, 1986, I believe. We we just drove up there with his gear my 78 bonneville i know that because uh, i saw the in the outtakes i saw the busted side view mirror and recognized it and so we we drove up and paid our way to go in to this parking lot they didn't care paid five bucks or whatever it cost and just got out the gear and started wandering around. We didn't know who we were going to encounter, if there was any hostility we would encounter. Mm -hmm. We just, we winged it and, you know, thankfully got great material. But like I mentioned at the screening, we only shot on three 
20-minute tapes, and they were surplus tapes at that. I mean, this was nothing that I even, you know, who knew? You, you know? were recording over something I was recording else? over something, because that was standard. These tapes were big, clunky tapes. You didn't go to the local, right. um, you know, uh, uh, appliance. You didn't get these tapes anywhere. Uh, you had to buy them professionally, and plus they were 20 or 30 bucks a pop. I don't even remember, but they were not cheap. So you just reused them. That was standard in the, in the, um, right. with the, 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 our public access. So, we used the tapes and, and had, you know, you had one camera and one portable deck and a separate microphone and all these. And it was just John and myself right. trading off. Once we realized we, there, we weren't going to have any hostility and people really embraced it and seemed right. to love it, we just kind of went with it. Well, a few people even say MTV. Well, at one point, see, here's what happened. I was trying to say, you're trying to say, look, this is public access. What's that? You know, <laughs> Channel 6A even more obtuse so at some point you're like ah oh, we're just you know i i think i i mean when i said we're with mtv and that guy goes bullshit you know which is classic <laughs> that wasn't like our, our our intent was not to right. um goof on people and it was just kind of an exasperated com reaction on my part to just say oh, we're with mtv and i guess also i thought well let me see what the response is mm -hmm. truthfully also we were saying a couple times because once we got our confidence up we were saying we're going to give the, give this to the band which yeah. we did we want to be able to you know show this to the band show them the fans we just we wanted to give to people a platform to talk i guess and and and, yeah. and again we weren't that accomplished documentarian so one of my favorite favorite reviews of, of heavy metal parking lot is from uh, the local paper the washington city paper around the time we started screening it and it just said uh it was like the uh the filmmakers don't reveal themselves to be any brighter than the people on camera because the, the questions we're asking which i thought was great and it was totally true right. we just were asking you know who are you here to see tonight what you know <laughs> I don't know, the president. I mean, of course, the, you know, Judas Priest, you know. It just was like, so we were just, you know, you having a good time? You know, at one point, uh, you know, you're fucked up. I'm asking, I mean, it's just dumb stuff. Right, I'm that's the, and the answer is half and half. Yeah, right, yeah. I'm like, what the hell? What would you do if you met Rob Halford right yeah. now, you know? Okay. I'd yeah. jump his bones. And also what helped, it, it, the accents are great. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. from Maryland. I have a Maryland accent. And mm -hmm. so to hear the really pronounced accents... I mean, it's it, it people it, people get a kick out of it. I certainly yeah. do. And of course, I mean, there's so much of it that's funny, and people are gonna laugh at stuff. And uh, the majority of that is all right. If you're gonna see somebody today or whenever, if you see someone in the in the '90s who's dressed head to toe in white and black, like leopard skin, you know, it's pretty funny. Right. It's it's of the time. But what's important about this and Neil Diamond and the show. And even King of Porn and everything else is you're, you're never really you're not trying to make fun of anybody. You are enjoying this outsider culture and people are going to laugh. And that's part of it. I, I agree. I mean, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it's true. I mean, I, a lot of people draw their everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But some people you know, think it's exploitive. But I know that I mm. I like these people and I'm I'm drawing I try not to. You know, I certainly don't try to put words in anybody's mouths. So I think anytime you tape, and certainly anytime you edit, there's manipulation going on. But you try, and, and I'm try. I mean, I'm I. The work I like to do is I, I don't really. I mean, I've done serious. <laughs> I've done serious. You know, I've done sober serious. You know, 
documentary filmmaking, but, uh, you know, this is what I like to do. <laughs> to really, you know, find yeah. the, uh, and, and to make audiences laugh. I mean, not, you know, it's not my express purpose, but I like the lighter, the lighter side. <laughs> Dave Berg, it goes back to Mad Magazine. There, you know, there you go, you know. So I just, uh, I, I, I really do, you know, find. What's a, what's a, what is an example of something super serious you had to do, like as a work gig? Well, yeah, it was a work gig. This was actually for Discovery Channel. Uh, GIs remember about, it was Jewish American liberators of the concentration camps. I mean, that oh, was wow. a job. I was fortunate. When I left Discovery, when I was at the Public Access Channel, which is where I got behind a camera and where I got to develop an eye and get behind the editing console and to create, you know, a documentary, a television documentary, whatever, I, it eventually ended, which was a good thing because I stayed too long. And, on, and, and you've seen my little tr tribute to Public Access. It had a lot of... There was an upside, but a tremendous downside too, because you were babysitting and working with people that just you were. It was exasperating, but um, again, you know, some of that was that just went with the territory. And finally, um, they actually shut the studio, which was a, mm. a blessing for me because it finally got me out. And I had fortunately, I, I, Discovery Channel was started uh, out of the University of Maryland. Um, mm. People, oh, wow. people from the university start. It was a fundraiser for the University of Maryland who started it. John Hendricks was the man who came up with the vision and idea. And so when he created the channel in, in the mid-'80s, I think I guess they launched in 1985, they recruited people I knew from the University of Maryland mm. in the broadcasting and the radio TV department to, to be the first staff. Wow. Um, and, and they... Eventually, one when I when five years later, one friend brought me over there on a temporary basis, which thankfully went five years, <laughs> and I got and I was very fortunate to work at a network that was emerging and growing, and but I but I got to learn television, real, I got to learn really the nuts and bolts of making television and making uh, you know working for a network and not just being a free spirit, loose cannon, anything goes at, which is what public access allowed me to do. So I got mm -hmm. to learn the nuts and bolts. Um, I guess I had a point to this. We were talking the, uh, the serious. Right. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. That, sorry. that was, um, I had my moment to produce for on air and that mm -hmm. was what I did. It was a companion short video for a longer format for a, a documentary about the liberation of the concentration camps. I think the film was called Nightmare's End, and I created a mm -hmm. companion called, <clears throat> excuse me, be called, called G.I.'s Remember, that was based on a local exhibit at the at a Jewish American military museum in Washington. But anyway, I've also, um, I mean, that's the one that I can really point to. I think also mm -hmm. as a, uh, I did something for Maryland Public Television, but this was also a light look at eating crabs too so maryland blue crabs and the crab culture so there was a lot of fun with that i think most of the serious stuff i've done um not so serious <laughs> i have my strengths right. i don't nobody's gonna hire me to go do something you know right. a, a, you know born into brothels you know a great film i'm not gonna make that you know <laughs> you know somebody or 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 any of the other you know, right. well, uh, top shelf film. I mean, this is where I think eventually mm -hmm. discovering Errol Morris was a great influence. Yeah. 
um, you know, Michael Moore invented, you know, well, not invented, but but also, you know, at liking television, there was a, a and, and there was a somebody named um, Mal Sharp, who was a comedian who did Man on the Street. Well, he wasn't really a comedian either. He did comic radio spot. He hmm. did kind of, um, you know, everybody's familiar with Candid Camera, Ambush, or not even Ambush, but Candid Camera was a big popular show on television. And I was, I certainly liked that. But then when I discovered the work of Mal Sharp, who was doing, uh, is it just interviews? Interviewing people mm -hmm. on the, man on the street, man on the street interviewing. And it, some of it came, went into comedy records. He had a partner named, uh, Jim Coyle. They were Coyle and Sharp. And when I, and then he even did television in San Francisco and, so I, and this was again, this was in the eighties public access time later. I mean, I was discovering his work and that was great, greatly influential. In addition to Chuck Statler, who still was a great influence. Mal Sharp's work was a great influence. Um, but I, you know, and I, I, I had, you know, been inspired by comedy records to comedy. Um, I mean, Flip Wilson, you'd buy comedy albums. Um, yeah. But 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 so a lot of this was all just this big kind of you know swirl that was around in my head, and then when I again when I had access to cameras, mm -hmm. and I liked Man on the Street. And, you know, truth is stranger than fiction, and you can kind of get great material just talking to people. And I've always had a good rap. I think that's right. I like being on the radio, doing college radio, and mm -hmm. so I I like to just engage. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, the, let's get the obvious question out of the way. Where is it at now? Because everybody asks you, has the band, has Judas Priest seen Heavy Metal Parking well, Lot? Well, Heavy Metal Parking Lot has been a, it, it, excuse me, it's a, uh, it's been my calling card, as has, and John Hine, too. I mean, we're both very lucky to have had uh, hit, you know, captured lightning in a bottle, you know, just have something that all worked in two hours in that parking lot because of the people we met. And then John took the footage and edited it. So he really deserves great credit as the architect. I, when we went back to my studio, I came up with the title instantly when looking at the tapes. I mean, I said, this is, we got to call this heavy metal parking lot. So John and I both really share, you know, equal credit and, and, and different levels for mm -hmm. different ways to, you know, creating this thing. But then of course it had to take root and, and we showed it. I never showed it on public access ever for obvious reasons. I'm not going to wave this in front of my superiors, you know, th this kind of programming. I just, right. but we also had, we wanted to be at that point, documentary filmmakers. We wanted to be, be go beyond where we were and have something that could play festivals, mm -hmm. could be distributed, mm -hmm. get, you know, further, um, commissions or get hired to do something else or, but, but it, there, there weren't a lot of precedents and this was not, this was before, I mean, there were no the video was not being screened in theaters, certainly not in film festivals, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me. And very few outlets uh, that could, could, could screen a video in a theater. Fortunately, we lived in, in Washington where the Kennedy Center had the American Film Institute Theater and Eddie Cockrell was a great programmer and he uh, he's still in film and writes about film uh, and he was who uh, gave us our first screenings publicly mm -hmm. in a theater uh, prior to that time we showed like at a you know um, 
nightclubs. Um, the, there was a local uh, venue called DC Space where they had film night, and we showed it. That's where we premiered it, and I screened it at a record convention, and, and we just... But the, the getting into the theater, we all want to be in a theater. Every filmmaker wants their work projected, and we certainly did, and we were fortunate. We were the opening band. We were the opening um, film for the Chuck Berry documentary, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. Right. And that was in 1988 at the AFI Theater. And we then got, two years later, we went back when I created, I quit, John and I were looking for outlets, and I kind of had lost my job at the public access studio I was feeling pretty low professionally but and had not been recruited yet by discovery but i needed something to pick me up and who want you know i said let's create our own film festival because at that point it's funny yesterday at the um mm -hmm. cine family i was or today whenever at the screening we were in comfortable couches you know and i think you made a comment about it being in the living room and yeah. this is exactly how we used to show my work. I used to have what I would call the best of public access, which oftentimes was the worst of public access, but it was just I would invite people over to my living room, right. and we would watch videos. We would watch the stuff that I had collected from the public access users or from had shot myself. Certainly that was with some of the earliest screenings of Heavy Metal Parking Lot were in my living room. Mm -hmm. And then, so I... Wanted to, I knew what I could do, and I sold John on doing a festival. We called it the Don't Quit Your Day Job Film Festival because it had a great ring to it, and I know it could get some attention and some publicity. And that's was going to be our. That's where we showed what we thought at the time was we thought that was our final screening of Heavy Metal Parking Lot. We built this whole show around the final screening of Heavy Metal Parking Lot, which was in 1990. Right. Little did we know, here I am and. 2012 and and we just screened it again and hopefully it will continue to screen <laughs> and and uh the thing is it it, it was um mm -hmm. uh it, it just took got it just by tape trading it kind of just grew mm -hmm. um we uh, we were lucky it was judas priest it could have been any band but luckily it was judas priest because their music holds up you know the anthems they do mm -hmm. that stuff's iconic they're iconic the artists that are mentioned in the um, film, Madonna, Metallica, they're all still vital and iconic and, and known. And so it, it could have gone in any number of directions. So that's, mm -hmm. we were just had a lot of luck on our side. And of course the people we met and everybody on that, everybody on screen from a few seconds to a mo minute or so, they feel like family to me. I mean, I love every single one of them. And, uh, and you've re-met a lot of them. We've been fortunate to meet a lot of the folks who were in it, they reached out to us through the internet. Um, in fact, Jay Hewen, who's our first alumni member, came to the screening on Sunday. He's uh, lives out in Los Angeles and works in the record industry, so it's kind of neat. Yeah, so, his story was amazing because some people were telling him about it, and he actually wrote Thurston Moore, and he got a copy of Heavy Metal Parking Lot from... Thurston Moore. I know, isn't that which funny? Is an extra layer. I certainly did. I didn't give it to Thurston Moore. You know, Moore. It just right. it got in his hands. Yeah. Um, well, and again, of course, uh, the head of Mondo Video was there. And Rob, was Colonel important. Rob, he he was a great proselytizer for us. Just out here on the West Coast, and and, it, and to people who were in the, you know, entertainment and music world and film world. So once we heard about people renting it from him, that's when we. This was in '94. And mm -hmm. we started to think maybe we had something here. 
because <laughs> he was making as as part of a store policy, he would make copies for people. That's what, yeah, out. that was what it's it, to us. We, it, we we start we we always gave it out. We always mm-hmm. gave it out because we knew we had so few options for distribution, and we also we gave it to the band. We went back when we made it in 1986, and mm-hmm. and essentially pirated their music and their image right. you can see you know and i even you know at the end i call it pirate video i would never do that today i mean it was like i'm like it was so just naive and flagrant to do that but we kind of thought we were being of, cute you know it wasn't out of spite it was not at all and, still and, fandom. absolutely and we wanted to show the fans we wanted to honor the fans we wanted to honor the band yeah you're and not we, trying to make any money here no god no i mean and we fortunately ba- yeah we never ugh. So, so you handed it to a manager, to a we, backstage person? This was in 1988. The band came back mm-hmm. on their Ram It Down tour. I still have the f- f- flyer. And, and it was a, they played the Capitol Center again. Mm-hmm. At this point, we had a few screenings locally. We were getting a bit of a no- notoriety. The promoter, cellar door management were very kind to allow us backstage. I made a pitch to mm-hmm. say, we want to give this to them and screen it for them and hopefully let them show it before they go on stage, which would be our dream to show it to the audience at this Judas Priest concert. So the management of the arena, the promoters set it up for us. I, you know, this was not to this day. I don't know why I didn't want to show it on VHS. Well, you know what? We wanted a three quarter. We needed to give them the best quality. And then we wanted a copy that can be shown on the telescreen because this arena had a big telescreen. Right. And um, so uh, we arranged a meeting that became with the tour manager and the accountant uh, at, at backstage. And we schlepped in this three-quarter inch deck and schlepped in this three this monitor. Right. And we went in there and put it in and showed it to them. And they couldn't have been more just cynical hardened businessmen that were just they were pointing out that's a bootleg t-shirt you know that person's wearing and they they didn't seem phased by the music they didn't seem phased by it in any way shape or form which was a relief to us because we didn't know how they would take it um right but they said okay you want to show it before you know the concert fine show it before the opening band because we don't want our music on before we go on that makes perfect sense, sure. you know, and I, we you know, I'm like, sure. I mean, we would have preferred to show it in front of the band, but the fact that right. we could show it anywhere in that arena that night was, we would, would be agreeable to. And, and so the people running the telescreen, they had said anything the band wants is fine. But when they saw it, <laughs> they balked. They said, we can't show this because, and I, again, I don't blame them. I mean, if the, if the owner of the arena was walking across the concourse and saw, because this was, this was the era of the parents music resource, you know, center and the beastie boys were getting in trouble and people were getting in trouble for all that kind of wanton, you know, uh, uh, partying behavior, which was going, we all knew it happened. Everybody, that just was a rite of passage and that just went on in the parking lots. But these people could not condone it by screening that. Right, right. And that was the end of it. We had backstage pass. We, we we got to sit and watch the concert. We left copies with the management. Even we, we even made PAL copies and oh, gave wow, it to yeah. them. But we never had a face to face with the band. Never heard from the band, mm-hmm. which I think was a relief because we didn't want to incur any you know cease and desist, what have you. Sure, sure. We basically we just thought well we we gave it our best shot, and that was that. Funny thing is it was 
Colonel Rob at Mondo actually um, told us like in 94 or 90, at some point he called us and said, hey, because he just had, he got the, Jude, the Judas Priest anniversary tape and he actually, <coughs> excuse me, was, uh, um, he uh, had the tape um, that was their own anniversary video, uh, which um, mm-hmm. took like, a few moments from heavy metal parking lot and included it in their anniversary, their 20 year anniversary tape, which I thought was great. You know, we borrowed from them and they borrowed from us right. and they, and you know, it, it was a wash. And, <laughs> and right. so, but, but that, but to the nowadays they do, they go on record as saying that, uh, they, they embrace it. I mean, they've been, we still have never had a face to face, never met them. Um, have tried at some point, and then I just gave up. I'm like, sure. it doesn't matter to me. I, I yeah. did. I would have loved to have had the man. I would have loved to have had um, the band meet people from the film. I mean, I thought how cool yeah. that would have been if we had arranged that, like mm-hmm. on a recent when they were swinging through um, the area, or even right. if you we we pitched at one point we we climbed pretty far up the food chain with VH1 about doing a documentary. Oh, you wow. know, um, and this was. Uh, maybe six, seven years ago before they went celebrity. You know, they were right. right. That was our bad timing because they, they turned their programming all around completely to, uh, uh, successfully. That was made sense. It's the celebrity stuff. So, but we did try, this was around the time we were putting the DVD together. Mm -hmm. Um, but on the DVD, we have alumni we've met, you know, so 2012, where does it stand with the band seeing it? Uh, well, they, you know to, well, they, they, they've just, or it's referent, like people interview them if they, you know, they'll talk about it. They'll, they're, they're not, they're aware of it. You know, the band, if, if it comes up in an interview with the band, they will mention it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? They, they acknowledge it, but they've never said, you know, those you know, they never said anything unkind about it, um, but I just well, they 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 seem to understand the strength of fans and really respect. Absolutely, that. I think most of these artists nice that have guys. the longevity they do really you know know it. It's without them, <laughs> they wouldn't be there. So and we captured it. We got we caught them. We got the band the the fans. We actually managed to uh, capture something that has stood the test of time and hopefully will continue. I never mm-hmm. take for granted that people see it though. Uh, you know, like I oh, never, interesting. yeah, I never, I mean, you know, certain people, certain constituencies, you'd think everybody's seen it untrue. <laughs> and I've known that the hard way. So I never, I never say that I made heavy metal parking lot with any assumption that people know what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. regardless of where I am. I cannot tell you how many times somebody introduces me as the guy who makes made heavy metal parking lot blank blank stares <laughs> blank looks i got tired of the blank looks so i really downplay it and right. try not to now of course it's very very gratifying yeah. when people do acknowledge it no that's a good that's yeah. a good you know america's a big place yeah. even if you're on the internet people don't know it right it, it absolutely matter. it's funny cuz everybody's oh, I, always, I i wanted to see that well you could yeah. just Google it if you wanted to see it. If you wanted to see it that bad, we make it readily available. But right. there's so much yeah. competition out there for yeah. your eyeballs. I mean, yeah. it's just and nowadays it's insane. And so yeah. I just, I, I just, you know, I, I now, actually like, like, quickly speaking about that, like, I, I'm surprised your YouTube channel is unfortunately very underutilized. 
um, you know, we're talking a thousand views on some of this stuff, and people are really missing out. So I'm going to see how much we, how many more people we can get to this. Because if you go to it, there's, it's not just the same old crap. There's a Ray Bradbury interview you did. <laughs> there yeah. is um, you asking Nick Zed to go to a party in 2000. And then uh, probably my favorite, which only has 47 views, uh, I had a flesh-eating infection. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a wealth of material on this. Are you – Are you? Ha- I mean, you must be happy YouTube exists for something I, I'm like thrilled. This. I'm thrilled. It, you know, it's maddening only in the sense that – I mean, it, it, it vexes me too because there's just so much. I, for a while there, I was like, how do I get people to watch this? And I'm like – Ah, screw it. You know, I don't care. It goes back to the point, like when we were talking earlier about college radio and, about, and then about public access programming. I mean, who cares who watches it? I made it for myself. I made it to make it, to put it out there. And if one person finds it and mm-hmm. digs it, you know. I mean, I think the real the unfortunate thing is that I really wanted to work in commercial television. I really wanted to do that. I still to this day want gigs. I still would love to work. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I mean, the stuff I'm doing is not necessary. It doesn't really fit into certain areas where people can yeah. exploit it or for, that would maybe trickle back to me. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, no. but I, you know. So to be fair, Heavy Metal Parking Lot is the lasting thing that people know about. But you've done so much other stuff. And, you know, part of that can be found through your website, jeffkrulik.com. People really should explore it. The YouTube channel is even more things that people haven't seen. And, you know, and I'm perplexed by, uh, of course, Ernest Borgnine. You did this film with him uh, on the bus. And he's just a larger-than-life character, really loving Worked at Discovery Channel at the time, and I had a friend that was in my department, and we both used to concoct, you know, TV show ideas that we thought were like that's your job. Well, okay, no. Was, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let me back up a minute. That was not our job, but we, you know, amused ourselves, you know, by just, you know, right. on our fantasy life that, you know, just, you know, some people take, uh, you know, cigarette breaks. We took, uh, you know, just we would just goof off and. Well, I know. Just show, at, at, at a job, we yeah. yeah. What we were just we were just aspiring you know, TV right. programmers, and and, and then, we were. And what was this but we, we the thing was is, but we had the. This is where the idea of uh, taking Freddie Blassie came to the King of Men, come to Washington D.C. wander around. Wrestler, him. Professional wrestler, and one thing led to another, and we actually did it. We made a video called "Mr. Blassie Goes to Washington." Right around that, you know, around the time in the mid '90s, um, we knew that Ernest Borgnine, uh, this fellow's name Brendan Conway, he and I just, you know, we just would always yuck it up about these crazy ideas. Um, we, he, some, I think he, Brendan knew that Ern, Ernest Borgnine, in semi-retirement, if not total retirement at the time, um, was um, dr- would drive around the country at, at the wheel of a of a bus. Uh, visiting, you know, just America. And we thought, wow, well, how hilarious is, is that image of this Hollywood icon, Mikhail, classic 
films, this right. major Hollywood actor you know, could, driving he, a bus. Yeah, and he would get recognized, right? Right. Well, uh, I, he had to be. He was not. You know, he didn't go under any kind of assumed name. He was Ernest Borgnine, <laughs> and people, and he looked like Ernest Borgnine. But what happened was, we thought, gee, how nuts is that? Because also, Charles Corralt had a show going around called mm-hmm. Sunday Morning, I think, where that was he yeah. would he, he would travel around in a Winnebago and do these many these on the road type documentaries around the country we thought gee what a cool idea ernest borgnine on the road you know on tour because rock bands travel in buses why can't ernest borgnine travel on the bus how nuts is it that he actually drives the bus what kind of image is that sounds pretty wacky let's let's take this further and we came up with the idea of ernest borgnine on tour where he would um, be driving, could 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 pick up Tim Conway, and then they could on reminisce about Mikhail's Navy as they drive somewhere, and then right. you know him showing up in oddball places and nobody, you know, just the the total incongruity sounds mm-hmm. like it would be great material. On paper, it was impossible to sell it, but first we had right. to get. Ernest Borgnine on board and you know at first we had to convince ourselves that we weren't just pulling each other's leg we really were committed to doing this and since we were aspiring um, uh, TV programmers producers we wanted to you know put our you know put up or shut up and that meant Mm -hmm. actually calling his agent pitching his agent Brendan and I always loved being you know that we got off in that whole milieu so we thought you know we'd be mm-hmm. at the very least it'd be cool to set up a meeting and a pitch meeting and go and it, it, we did at the plaza hotel in new york when he was on the east coast and this was in august of 1994 uh mm-hmm. we um and i actually had professional t-shirts made up silkscreen shirts ernest borgnine on tour do I still have one? No, but I had a bunch made up and had, you know, and, and actually is him. Uh, it was cool. It was, it just friend was a t-shirt designer and it just was great because it showed him we were serious. It was a cool thing to leave behind. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, he was great. He said, this is a great idea. Sounds like fun. I mean, nothing signed of course, but yeah, we yeah. ended up just at, then it was back in our court to try to figure out how to do it. Eventually, um, you know, we built, maintained the relationship with his assistant, right. who even became more important than his agent. You know, mm-hmm. eventually they started thinking that it was for Discovery Channel because we were liberal about that. We work at Discovery, sure. although we never p- p- intended it to be. It could have been, but it wasn't really you know, because, again, reality TV just didn't exist. Nothing. And so the fact mm-hmm. is we were trying to pitch it on paper and it went nowhere. And I even had dialogue with Conan O'Brien's people now that I think about it. But they mm-hmm. would have taken it away. They thought it was cool, but I still wanted to make the film. Yeah, and um, You would have become just a segment producer. Right, right, exactly. And, and I just, what happened was Ernest Borgnine was going to be in Milwaukee um, where he went every year to be a, uh, in the circus parade. <laughs> he and his wife. So they were taking the bus, or he was taking right. the bus there. Turns out with his son, they were traveling around on the bus. This was our moment, our opportunity to go out. I ponied up. I hired a crew. Mm-hmm. I rented an RV. Got my brother to come out um, to drive it. It was just kind of we made it up as we went along. It was strictly to get a reel, just to get footage. And we shot for one whole week, actually four days. 
but we stayed in a campground. We got all this footage. It was great. I interviewed them on the bus. It was real neat. Yeah. And it actually kind of came together on camera. Oh, he's and, such a character. And he was a character. He was brilliant. Yeah. His his son was great. They really had this cool father-son thing going on, which was a side sidebar. He was very gracious. So anything we wanted to do, he was very keen and, and, and game and just mm -hmm. couldn't have been nicer and was very engaging and funny. Even if the camera's not on, he's a nice guy. He was oh, a yeah. terrific guy. Talked about any any question people had, he would talk wow. to him, answer. You know, and just He was swell. And... Um, so the footage then was there. I had to get it. My my brother cut a reel mm -hmm. because he was doing avid editing, and then um, it just was time to sell it, and we still couldn't get any bites. And yeah, people uh, just know. didn't understand. Right. That. I went to Natpe, <laughs> the television programmer. Right. I, I remember having a face to face with Erna, with Warren Littlefield, who was head of NBC. Just, I bumped into him literally, and he thought it was cool, but. I'm sure he said it was everything was cool to people. You know, what's he gonna do? Say no. You know, why when you when he's talking to you, when you go through the whole, you know, the right. you start the chain of uh, you know, yeah, yeah, the, the, trying to go go somewhere with it. It just nobody could get their head wrapped around it. Right. Eventually, a video a home video company stepped up and put it out on home video as Ernest Borgnine on the bus. And this was again ninety seven, ninety eight. Which is a great product. It, it's yeah. a really beautiful little portrait. Yeah, I mean, I was guy. real happy with how that all came together. Yeah. When I, you know, sadly, we lost him. He died this year at mm -hmm. 95. I shot that when, at 79. He was driving that bus at age 79. And <laughs> it's like tooling. And it's, he just, and, and that's a. 20 years old. That's a, man, that, but that's such a, that is a tough thing to drive. I mean, that yeah. is not like driving a. Anything that I can even get my head wrapped around. And he didn't have any training. He just got behind the wheel, learned as he went, you know, figured it right. out. I would imagine he had to get a license eventually to drive that, but I don't recall him. He didn't have to go to a trucking school. But he was a, he was a big, big advocate of truckers. And mm -hmm. he was just a swell guy. And he certainly was gracious and generous to me. Well, another guy that just understood fandom. Right. Respected people who liked him, knew that it was all a strong community in order for him to do his art. Really just a conscious of... Absolutely. He was nice. very nice. And he and he was... Uh, and he certainly was good to me, letting me kind of take this and run with it. And um, what's neat is uh, I, I went back and looked at all the outtakes because mm -hmm. there were quite a few. And I thought, oh, my God, because I made that... In, in a linear fashion it was the last linear project that i did where you had to commit mm -hmm. to it so it had so so <laughs> nothing got everything just went in from point a to point b and you couldn't really play around with it when i saw what was right. on the cutting room floor i thought oh my goodness let me let me and i never put it on dvd um you know unfortunately right. but i created a whole youtube channel <laughs> that's just that has all the footage that's great uh, you know broken up into you know 40 plus minute 40 different videos right. that are of the whole trip so and plus with every everything like 10 minute 12 minute chunks of him talking about his career oh that's great <laughs> yeah that's so great yeah another great thing and good times video was that who put out on the bus was that the company that did ep mode Probably, yeah, 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 real cheap stuff would show up in the gr yeah. the drugstores, you know, in the in the yeah. bins, you know, right. and in the uh, you know the local uh, 
uh, discount mart. Right. You know, they would show and yeah, EP. They'd they, save they, they money, put, so it'd be less tape. Less tape. They put it out on you know the, the old Laurel and Hardy and Betty Boop cartoons. I right. mean, the, I guess public domain footage they put out. Plan Nine. I mean, a lot of that was people too much. so good times. Good times home video, and but it was cool. It's this like you're yeah. immediately into the into the canon, right? At that point, because yeah, Orson Welles' The Stranger, I think, was another big really another big public domain. Oh release. my! It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, of course, yeah. You were right there, <laughs> right, right. In the immediate public domain, right? Absolutely, and I I didn't have any problem with that. My again, it goes back to that. Right. My my public access my college radio my whole yeah vi even now with youtube not paying attention to the the hits i just put it out there and so this was great right. you know it's i still wish it had gotten a little wider distribution because it was a ambitious <laughs> right. project right. but um we got it on home video and i of course then once i started mm -hmm. going on the circuit uh touring if you will to the alter mm -hmm. alternative film festivals it, it got me it gave me something beyond heavy metal parking lot to show mm -hmm. as well as the blassy project and some of the yeah. other ones king of porn i mean i really got a little more ambitious as my time at discovery came to an end and and because i wanted to produce i wanted to do more mm -hmm. i wanted to really step it up and you know for for the most part i guess i did yeah no it's a career you know I don't not to get confused with um a money-making thank you <laughs> empire it's not yes. like i mean yeah. but i think that i think it comes across in all the work none of it feels in the right way none of it feels like oh yeah he's got to go make another movie because he's a filmmaker you know and i think that a lot of documentarians uh, hopefully uh try their hardest to not fall into that trap like well i mean it's just about paying the bills even for documentarians you're going to be doing a commercial you're going to be doing a tv show you're going to be doing something so you can go make a film about something that's really interesting that people won't necessarily pay money for you to go do. And I think you've got that very good, pure vibe, you know. Like you're saying, you have, like, King of Porn, which is a, a touchy subject when you're talking about exploitation. Not just what you're doing with him, but, like, you make this guy actually seem like a human being, even though he is obviously on the fringe. You do a good job of that, and there's a great shot of you on the bed <laughs> saying... I'm really wondering sometimes <laughs> how I get into these places, yeah. but it's like a really, f a lot of good, fascinating portraits that are interesting across wow. the way. Well, thanks, Mike. I'm really, I mean, you've been real kind to me over the the years. I think um, it's nice to know people get it, you know, and people... Uh, well, all the times that we'll it, show yeah. it, like a film festival will show it, people will come, people are really interested in it. People at Cine Family, people were quoting the line. That was crazy to me. That was really <laughs> neat, you know. Singing along. Yeah. All the sort of stuff. It's great. And, you know, it, um, it, uh, I'm looking at this list because I wrote down, it's, it, it kind of burns me up right now that I, I always, I thought about it the day later to do a Jeff Krulik parking lot video. Because <laughs> once we were out back, it was, yeah. you know, not just, uh, the fans, the actual fans, but, um, uh, was it Captain Rob? Colonel Rob, yeah. Colonel, Colonel Rob, Rob, sorry. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I demoted him. I'm so no. Sorry. <laughs> Colonel Rob from Mondo Video yeah. was there. One of the guys who's actually in Heavy Metal Parking Lot was mm. there. Uh, I saw, I think it was Dan Klaus was also there to see it. I mean, it, I really, we should have done this. Dan Klaus, the... Uh, yes. The uh, cartoonist? The incredible cartoonist. Yes. You're kidding. I am 99% sure that was him. Wow. There, seeing that. <laughs> and, you know... Whatever, that's all right. Sooner or later, you should get someone to do that, though. The Jeff Krulik parking lot will be very, very fascinating. Well, huh. You know, um, 
Uh, I, hey, I'm. Look at we've been talking for two hours. I mean, I'll just talk. I, lo- I love the opportunity to like just go on, and right, this right. was a this was therapy for me. I mean, I really can't. Oh, good. You know, good. Yeah, I'm. It was cheap. cheap therapy. <laughs> yeah. So so let's end with right let's let's that. talk yeah. a little bit. Um, let's uh, briefly talk about Led Zeppelin played here. This is the new project. New project, yes, the one that will be the next ambitious, semi-ambitious. Mm. Um, what is what is the story? Where did Led Zeppelin play? Well, they of course, when like any band, they became you know uh, they had to start somewhere, and from the uh, you know ashes of the uh, Yardbirds, they were the new Yardbirds, and then you know rapidly became Led Zeppelin, who then became you know the biggest band of the 1970s, arguably. And I'm not a huge fan. I mean, I you know right. I have their CDs. Mm-hmm. now but at the time i had one record so i didn't i wasn't a big mm-hmm. fan but you, you, again they they really defined the era and were right. you know ubiquitous and their their sound their just everything about them was just like i say defining however right. like i say some they have to start somewhere and in the washington dc era air, area excuse me they their first concert um Mm-hmm. Was at this local youth center, this community center. And this um, is and, has an album come out then? Yeah, I, I I I need to get you know yeah they, 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 the album was just coming out, mm-hmm. but it really hadn't hit. Oh wow! And and so and the thing was is they had just landed on these shores a few weeks before, you know really just then you know barnstorming around the country, right. and so you had somebody looking you know calling ahead say you got an open date for this band and the band happened to be led zeppelin and the guy who promoted the shows the local radio dj but promoters didn't even exist like we know them now i mean this was the the dj who put on these concerts and promoted them Mm -hmm. um how they find the youth center well the youth center was where they were doing bands every week they were band, uh, local bands but then when other when artists were starting to tour and play you know uh, alice cooper or uh, bob seeger or sir lord baltimore you know acts that were you know just getting right. national exposure right. and were then looking to tr- try to travel and, and and sell records and whatnot i mean this was at a time when it the whole industry was being invented which i find fascinating but Uh here's a case where nobody believes this concert happened because it took place on a monday night a snowy monday night (laughs) that was poorly promoted no ticket stubs no flyers really done on the on the fly because it was literally hey you got an open night yeah monday and they're in between like i think pittsburgh on one side Uh and michigan on the other so they just would you know, who, who knows, Led Zeppelin or whoever, the, the road crew or management didn't even realize how far a drive it would have been, but they did it, they agreed to go. It happened to be the night of Richard Nixon's first inauguration. So there's really, at least in the Washington area, there's a lot of attention focused elsewhere, especially in the, with the counterculture, counter, counter-inaugural stuff going on, mm-hmm. protests. So it's really possible, it's conceivable that something like this, you know, nobody knew Led Zeppelin, they, they you know, the uh that there was it was hastily put together so it's conceivable it really would have flown under the radar screen which it did and mm-hmm. and apparently you know like 50 confused teenagers if that were there and 
so this is really the launching point for this documentary project right. that I've got a lot of material on to try to not just draw the conclusion that this concert did happen, but really paint a picture of that time mm -hmm. and the emerging rock concert industry. And it was really a microcosm of what was happening all around the country. Yeah. So I have the oral histories. I, I've got more. I, I feast on this stuff. I love it. I really am interested in it. It's where I where I'm from. It's it's a subject that I'm really fascinated with. So that's where how it really, um, right. the origins were. It was originally going to be on, focusing on this con this two day rock concert that took place a month before Woodstock, mm -hmm. at the Laurel Racetrack with Led Zeppelin headlining. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Sly and the Family Stone and uh, oh, wow. 10 Years After and um, mm -hmm. Frank Zappa, the Mothers, a two-day fest that was going on that really, unless you were there, nobody... But these fests and these pop festivals, it was called the Laurel Pop Festival, they were mm -hmm. going on around the time of Woodstock. But Woodstock, of course, was iconic, mm -hmm. well, it, you know, generation-defining, but um, in many ways because of the movie afterwards but of course yeah. the event too not to take anything away from that but i mean too many people yeah but it was um but the thing is uh so i kind of was focusing on maryland's woodstock what have you <laughs> and then but but going back i found the story much more compelling where they were from the this kind of humble spot because also that spot oh here's the neat thing the building's still there and oh, it looks wow. the same you know, wow. it's a 60s architecture, you know, with these 60s touches from built in 1963. So the building tells the story to me. And yeah, my my plan is to have a preview screening of this in January mm -hmm. and eventually premiere it next year because I want to do it on the night mm -hmm. of the inauguration <laughs> at the oh, uh, in January, in January, January 20th, 2013. And it'll be 44 years ago that oh, exact wow. night. And what's good is because I can't compete with the inauguration, regardless of who wins. <laughs> but it's the right. night; it's the night before, because oh. the the inauguration this year is on the twenty first, because it's the wow. King holiday, Monday. Oh wow! So anyway, there's ways to kind of still have a right. get, so I won't get totally lost in the shuffle. But more importantly, give me a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> so it's called it's called Led Zeppelin played here. Led Zeppelin played Talk here. To the people who were really there. Right, right. Were there um, and people who were there. But Did you get anybody that would like worked at the hall? Well, yeah, people yeah. who worked at the hall. I have a lot mm -hmm. of radio, of phone interviews as well as, uh, uh, you know, because also a lot of the kind of what happened was it got press locally. Yeah. And then, boom, my phone was ringing off the hook and I've got emails and interviews. Oh, you mean this project you're the project, making that press? Yeah. Right, exactly. And I had a reunion at that center. Oh, wow. So people came and that was cool. And, and what was the there. count? Because I always love that stuff. Everybody saw, with the exception of Woodstock, everybody was at this concert and this tiny place that only holds right. 50 people. I don't have an act. I, I, I really, believe me, more people were not there than said they were. I yeah. think a lot of the people that were there might have been just kind of, they, they reinvented history. They might have seen another act, but it was, they think it was Led Zeppelin. I, oh, I guess fine. connecting the dots is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I can't reach everybody and talk to everybody, but I don't believe there's going to be the hard concrete see we also live in this conspiracy theory era mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. time and people still don't believe the moon landing happened you know and mm -hmm. so so here's the thing you've got this concert with this legendary band but no proof that people need in this day and age right. to, because 
it's just not going to happen. That I'm going to give it what, have what they need. Right. And I like the kind of Rashomon era, you know, uh, notion of the different stories to talking about yeah. the same thing. That well, and again, you're interested in people's experiences. It's not like you, it's not the documentary style that's in at this hour at this date this thing happened and unless you're telling the real news if you're telling something very very controversial well everybody needs to kind of think for themselves too yeah i mean i i guess yeah. I, I i don't know i mean i think i'm 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 a bit too candid i mean i would never sometimes i try to like make sure the story's accurate you know from what i'm telling and i can just go on this ridiculous tangent i think a lot of people mm -hmm. do shortcuts and it's understandable who knows how and this nowadays so much is Avail, you know, just the. I mean, I remember when Wikipedia was all of us. People woke up and thought, "Wait a minute, this is not." Yeah, you know, they, exactly. you know, this might be not accurate. Oh, the most fascinating thing on Wikipedia that me and some other dudes are doing are looking up professional wrestlers, because on Wikipedia it's listed as factual. This happened. He won the <laughs> WWF right, right. World Championship. Mm -hmm. He was champion. For this year, this many years, you know, speaking of Fred Blassie, among others, and actually, and that's even more genius, which that's a whole nother rabbit hole like we're talking about. <laughs> Freddie Blassie in the town of politicians. Like, right. Oh, guess what? He actually fits there. You know? <laughs> but uh, on Wikipedia, they'll list like these are his moves. And there's like this very statistical list of these are the moves. This is what it does to someone. Yeah. And he wins these matches. It's fascinating. I just there's just such a. You know, so much is out there, and there's so much, and, and then to, I guess it's a matter of just whatever you need to, like, it, it, whenever something really, you kind of know when something needs to be fact-checked, whether it's literally fact, or you want to cross-reference, mm -hmm. I mean, or like yourself, you want to just know, but I, I think most people don't have that kind of mm -hmm. insight, you know, maybe, that, you know, they take things at face value, so. Yeah, it's a busy world, even, like, take away the internet, you still, you gotta work eight hours, you got a family, whatever, the way you're going to consume the news is going to be you're going to have to just trust the person telling it. So some you know what we're doing. So yeah. there are some people that are just like Led Zeppelin never played here. Right. <laughs> like I would have I would have known I would have known if they played there. <laughs> is it yeah. like some personal cause? Like I was cool I, enough then I would have been there. Probably. Or just the fact <laughs> that it's so unbelievable to wrap your heads around when you see this modest room. But you know everybody yeah. had to start somewhere and. You know. Oh, yeah, the police, um, you know, there's that uh, documentary Stuart Copeland made about their first, I believe it's the first U.S. tour for the police. They started on one coast. They were nobody. By the time they got to the other coast, they were the police. Huh. And, they, yeah. and it was in that tour wow. that they were like, oh, my God, people won't let us <laughs> like, yeah. go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Fandom. Well, it is fandom. You're right. Yeah. So Led Zeppelin, it, you actually have a date. Well, I'm going to. To preview. To preview the screening. My mm -hmm. goal for it is to have it online. I want to be able to get to a point at some, you know, hopefully mm -hmm. next year after the screening. At one point, I wanted to, th I was going to premiere it and screen it at the same time, that January twentieth. Right. Now, how cool would that be? Yeah. But that would require the promotional machinery, sure, as well as the pro I'm to produce. I know I'm going to be working on it up to the last minute, so yeah, yeah. I don't think I could then also deal with having to the you know the promoting it right. online so i'll figure out another target after it gets ready i then plan i'm probably i don't know if it's going to be strong enough for the film festival entry 
Um, mm-hmm. But I, I feel like it's going to at least be of interest to people that will – I mean, I'm intrigued by the possibilities of, of – um, having it available uh, mm-hmm. online premiere you know creating a website for it and putting it out this is gonna sh- stream here and right have fun yeah, yeah there will be another cool date probably you can pull <laughs> into it with the that's right thing. right exactly so awesome well jeff thanks for doing this mike i'm just I'm I'm really I'm in awe of this setup here, and I can't believe it. Really? You really? Well, I just <laughs> you know what? Because I, I come from college radio. I come from right. the idea. You know, this is where my college station can now be heard around the world. When I was doing it in yeah. a studio, you c- couldn't drive up very far off campus. I mean, it was ten oh, watts, that's interesting, and yeah. it just was not feasible. I mean, I see like that station can now be heard yeah. globally. WMUC, your work here at this, you know table we can you know posting it online will be available oh it's great internationally for for those of you who can stay awake to hear this <laughs> and go to the end but that is one of my favorite yeah. memories as a kid is being able to like hear uh songs i recognized on college radio and then being able to call and talk to the guy playing them which blew my mind and that it was just like you know whatever i was in high school so he was pro- and it was college or whatever was five years <laughs> right. older but still right. just like Hey man, yeah, what's going on? Oh yeah, I like that band too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> what about that one album? That one album's cool. Yeah, that album's cool. Yeah, and just like, like realizing, oh god, maybe I can leave this town. Yeah, and do something else. Yeah, that was that. That's it. I mean, just that, and that's what we kind of live for. Even this. I mean, now I welcome anybody writing online. I'm of course. Mm-hmm. Jeff e- yeah, uh, Jeff at com. My website's jeffkrulik.com, and that's a portal to all the videos that yeah. I have on YouTube and Vimeo. And uh, so it's a real rabbit hole <laughs> if you've got the <laughs> time and inclination. But I appreciate yeah. your interest, Mike, and I really thank you for sure. inviting me over. Yeah. Thanks again. Thanks again.